What made you decide to join the paratroopers? I wanted to fight with the best, sir. This is Easy Company, the finest company in this regiment. found in one another a bond among brothers. I'm proud to have served with each and every one of you. This podcast is a love letter to the greatest miniseries and event in television history. This is my opinion, of course, but also in regard to the memory of a generation which in 2019 is nearing extinction. The history of the men and women of World War II will always be remembered thanks to great works such as Band of Brothers and writers such as Stephen Ambrose. Never forget what the men and women before you gave us so we can have the freedoms and opportunities you have each day of your life. With that, I get to welcome a great friend back to the podcast today. Michael Ratty joins us again for a great journey back to the story of a new kind of soldier in America's armed forces. Their motto would help end the war in Europe. Kurahi! All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Exit 34 podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Spencer. We've been on hiatus since the end of the year, but without further ado, we had to bring back an all-star to start us off in 2019. We're welcoming back our one of our favorites, Michael Raddy is back with us to talk about something special. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Had a blast last time and uh, look very much looking forward to uh, this chat. So it's a big deal today, everybody. We're here to talk about it's a big anniversary. Uh, it's what, the 20, 20th anniversary? Is that what we're here to talk about? I'm trying to remember. What what was the, uh, what's, what would this make? 1998 to 2018? My math's bad. That's 20, yeah. It's been about 20 years, and I, I talked to Mike about wanting to talk about our favorite documentary of all time, Band of Brothers. It's been this long since that's been on television. Mini, 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 mini series. <laughs> what did I say? Not docu- you said documentary. Well, okay, fine. Mini series, whatever. It's the greatest miniseries of all time. So It's the greatest everything. It's the greatest television thing ever. And in my opinion, it will always remain the greatest thing I've ever seen on television. And that we'll get into that later. But in 1998, basically, HBO, a network that would completely break through television's cable walls with hits like The Sopranos and Sex and the City, decided to take on its biggest project ever. A 10-hour World War II miniseries by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. And after three years and over $100 million later, we got B.O.B., Band of Brothers. The true story of Easy Company, a single paratrooper company making their way through basic training all the way to the end of the war in Europe. Band of Brothers dwarfed all other TV dramas with its budget, cast, effects, and extraordinary attention to period detail. The result was, as I said, the greatest television experience of my lifetime and one of the most acclaimed World War II dramas ever filmed. Michael, let's uh, jump in and start about talk about how this thing really kind of began and got going. So it started in development after Saving Private Ryan. It's basically like it started there with Spielberg and Hanks, and then after a few years of development, it broke out in 2001. And I think one of the things I, f- I found was it actually came out 
like a couple days before 9-11, right? Yeah. Um, I, think a, I think a lot of people uh, either forget that. I think that's sort of been lost to the history of Band of Brothers. And I mean, it's kind of fascinating when you think about it. I mean, personally, I had been reading, this is obviously, you know, early, early, early internet, but certainly as a huge fan of Saving Private Ryan and read all of the publicity about this miniseries. And it was going to be the biggest thing that had ever been attempted at the time in television personal anecdote i was you know i was at a bachelor party in montreal the that weekend and but i remember being you know back in my apartment in somerville first apartment ever in boston i literally moved to boston two weeks before and as tired as i was i remember being front and center for the premiere on sunday night they actually showed episode one and two on the first night which some people also forget but i remember you know this was a, a much different time in tv and cable and media there were a lot less entertainment options then, uh, as you remember. And this was, you know, the definition of appointment television. I had HBO in college and we were all we were all watching, you know, The Sopranos and Sex and the City and all these other shows. It was pretty clear into the first episode and especially into the second episode when they're dropped into Normandy that this was, you know, something that we had never seen before on TV. Now, Stephen Ambrose wrote the book that this is based off of, Band of Brothers, and I didn't, I forgot to look this up, but I couldn't remember if Band of Brothers came out before Citizen Soldier or after, or like D-Day. Ambrose had like those three books that were just huge. They're like the, like the, like a trilogy of books that every history, history buff or especially World War II historian read. I mean, I remember reading D-Day and, and Band of Brothers. I never read Citizen Soldier, but I know those three were like on like the shelf of every person who who read World War Two and Ambrose is just one of those all time historians and Band of Brothers is the is the book obviously that this one is based off of. Yeah, and and it's Citizen Soldier actually came out even before Saving Private Ryan because that right. that book came out in ninety seven. Saving Private Ryan was ninety eight. Did you and just by point of reference and I actually don't know this, I'm asking you, did you had you read his books before you had heard about Band of Brothers or before Band? I read D Day after Saving uh, Saving Private Ryan, so okay. I was positive D Day had already come out. <laughs> so I had read that one, and then I only I read Band of Brothers post. It's always I've always been an after guy when it came to Ambrose. I read it after Saving Private Ryan, and then Band of Brothers came out, and then I read Band of Brothers, which is actually interesting to do because of the stuff that you that it just you know just like anything that it leaves out. I think I've subsequently read two or three other books on Band of Brothers since Band of Brothers have come out, like from the individual soldiers in the series. I'll admit transparency. I, you know, I was I was aware of Stephen Ambrose's books at the time. I sort of became aware of this, these books and this sort of genre around Saving Private Ryan. But personally, coming into Band of Brothers, I was coming in cold as a from a viewer standpoint. So I was coming in fresh. I didn't know the characters. I didn't know, you know, who lived and, you know, who died, who survived. So these were these were all new characters. No, absolutely. And probably as I would say maybe a majority of the viewers were uh, that night. It it is, you know, without jump jumping ahead too much. It it is one of those shows that in the first episode or two you you can feel I think it's easy to feel a little bit overwhelmed. Oh, opening scene from the second episode is a jaw dropper. Yeah, you're like by the it's a it can be a little bit easy to be overwhelmed by the characters. I'm calling them characters; they're obviously real people. I do think that in episode one and two, they do uh, an amazing job of 
spreading the ball around, so to speak, and getting to know everyone. And it's not too long before, which is one of the strengths of the whole series, is that you very quickly, at least I did, draw a really close attachment with a lot of these guys. And, you know, after that first night, and, you know, again, back to when this premiered, this is obviously pre-DVR. If TiVo existed in 2001, I I didn't know about it, or <laughs> and I certainly didn't have it. And it was one of those things where, uh, in your mind, you're sort of like, well, this is what I'm doing every Sunday night, you know, from 9 to 10 for the, uh, you know, for the next nine weeks. And I should just note quickly, the premiere, the ratings, 10 million people watched episode one and two Sunday night. Yeah. That is a huge number that would be a really huge number now even back in that time frame you you know when you mentioned it was unlike anything you had ever seen before to put that into context for some people the the production itself just to give some some statistics the production itself required 2000 american and german military uniforms 1200 vintage costumes that's not counting new costumes more than 10000 extras more than 14,000 rounds of ammunition per day of shooting, mm-hmm. 500 speaking roles, and the special effects alone were so large that by the mm-hmm. time the third episode was completed, it had already used more pyrotechnics than the entire filming of Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> Which is so, just an, out, an outrageous stat. That's a huge one, especially when I thought that the first episode, Curahy, is basic training. So nothing really, you don't really get a lot of uh, explosions in the first episode. And it's like an hour and a half long. It's the long, It's the longest episode, I believe. There's nothing really blowing up or being shot much in the first episode. And after the next two, it already had more explosions and shooting than Saber. So for all intents and purposes, in two episodes, they matched. Yeah, they matched it. And I know it was as far as viewership, like you mentioned too. It went on to be one of the one of the largest as far as ratings and viewership mm-hmm. of any miniseries ever and considering the fact that the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened only a couple of days after the premiere we were actually coming up into hollywood a huge lineup of war films mm-hmm. i found out that like black hawk down mm-hmm. was shifted from november to a march release behind enemy lines which was i think like a gene hackman movie was shifted from october to january hearts war bruce mm-hmm. willis moved from december to spring wind talkers was moved from november to june so all these like war films or you know violent films were moved from immediate kind of releases in the next couple of months to way later band of brothers was like the only thing that had just been released that was now going to play through this mm-hmm. kind of weird time that people were still drawn to it it was it continued to be a a watch series and it ended up being popular critically too it ended up uh, being nominated for 20 Emmys, winning seven. It won a Golden Globe, a PGA Award, an AFI Award, and given a Peabody. Before we get into just episode-by-episode episode fun stuff, I just want to talk about the actors. I know we were going to talk about the, the episodes, but some of the actors that were in these episodes. And anybody who's listening to this thing has to be a fan. The actors in this thing, they're like a solid 20 guys in this. It's incredible. It's insane. It's totally insane. And we can stop, start at the top of the list, and I'm sure you've got yours. So the lead actor in the show that played um, Dick Winters, who's basically like a god, was Damian Lewis, who then went on to be in Homeland and is now in Billions. Billions. Yeah. And <laughs> and that was just like, that's that's he's basically like a, a garbage man when it comes to like the, the level of actors that end up being 
in in Band of Brothers that you kind of only get like a glimpse of. But Damian Lewis, let's go back and forth here like we're playing tennis. So you have Damian Lewis. You want to throw out one? Who would be your net, second at bat? Who would be batting second and <laughs> for you? In terms of FaceTime, Ron Livingston, who right. you know plays Captain Nixon. It's an understated role. He is sort of at times the comic, not the comic foil, but he sort of gets in a lot of laugh lines because, you know, Dick Nixon is, uh, you know, plays it straight and he's the serious guy who is always, his mind is always on the mission. And, you know, Ron Livingston, I'm sure, and maybe still is, but at the time was, you know, the guy from Office Space um, had been, had been obviously in Swingers and some other independent movies. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I know you're up next, but the no, go ahead. the casting director, you know, needs <laughs> needs his or her own special notice yeah, as no podcast shit. because the crew that they assembled is staggering. And I think to your point, to see what many of them have gone on and done is a credit, you know, the the casting team that put this um that that put this roster together. Yeah. Just from the leads, like Scotty Grimes of Drake at Mass, Tingsboro, yes. Lowell fame, hey, um, is now in Seth MacFarlane's show. What's this? that show, the Star Trek series that's on there now? I forget the name of it. Orville, but... yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, you said it. I didn't have to. Nice. I got that one. Just to talk about even the smaller roles, we got James McAvoy's in it for one episode. He's in Replacements. Okay, you're, gets... you're, you're jumping ahead, too. Uh, I know, I know. Uh, I don't care. Okay, I have to. Because let's just, let's just, let's, uh, it's too hilarious okay, your show, to just your show. think about the big guns here. So th- to think about just the big guns, let's just name them off because they're hardly even in the show. And they end up going on to be just all-stars. Ma- it's You'd probably put McAvoy, Tom Hardy, Simon Pegg, Michael Fassbender, and Jimmy Fallon mm-hmm. would have to be the five guys. <laughs> five guys. Well, I mean, Schwimmer you can do, but we'll talk about Schwimmer in a minute. But those five guys aren't even in it for more than, like, maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes of total really good time. <laughs> those are huge names. I mean, Fastbender's in almost every episode, but he's only in it as, like, a, 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 a like a high five or a Briefly, wave. He yeah. Has like, yeah. He's not a he's not a lead character. Tom Hardy is basically naked. Yep. And that's, and that's all you get from him. These guys are superstars. Yeah. I mean, you've got... Simon Pegg, you know, went on to, you know, obviously do the, you know, Cornetto trilogy and, you know, he's uh, in Star Trek and he's sort of a... He's Tom Cruise's buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, Mission Impossible, he's in multiple franchises. Jimmy Fallon has, you know, the top-rated or usually top-rated <laughs> talk show. James McAvoy, you know, is in every, seems to be every... He's Professor X. Yeah, every big franchise. It's written Tom Hardy, Bane, and Venom, and is in you know just Christopher every Christopher Nolan movie. It's incredible how they pluck these people out, and you know what you said. Even even there's some episodes where some of these guys, it could be a line, or you know walking into a room and you know having one scene with someone. They all seem to make the most of it. And you get, obviously I wasn't there, but you get the sense that everyone on this set was literally giving a thousand percent in every scene. And obviously they had amazing talent, you know, behind the cameras as well, which is just as important to make this whole thing come together. But it just seems like everyone involved was firing on all cylinders. And it's only when all that happens 
when this comes together. You just mentioned a bunch of guys. I'm going to mention a few more. Like, but wait a minute. Okay, okay. so McAvoy, though, just to give some people background, I know I threw out those names. McAvoy plays um, actually like a really good sympathetic mm-hmm. character in Replacements. Tom Hardy is in the same epi- the same, I believe, the same episode when they um, liberate Einhoven and he gets caught in yes. like a sexual situation. Simon Pegg is in Curahy. I think the most you see him is in Curahy because he's David Schwimmer's like right Sobel's yeah. right hand man. Fastbender is in the is in Curahy too. He's the one who who drinks out of his canteen. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Fallon is in Bastone right before delivering they go supplies. off into the woods. Yeah. He's delivering ammunition. Okay, just to give some people some a heads up if they're watching the show. But go ahead. Yeah, you drop off a, a couple. Of you them. mentioned Schwimmer, and I'm not going to go any longer without saying that I think. Schwimmer gives an absolutely incredible performance in this series. Obviously, episode one. The goal of episode one, in addition to introducing you to this, you know, group of characters and getting to know them, is to make you hate Lieutenant Sobel. And at the end of the episode, you do. It's incredible what they do and how they do it. Later, which I guess in episode two, when he's removed or relieved or transferred because the men don't trust him to lead to follow him into battle and you know it doesn't need to be said schwimmer is it was the guy from friends he had been in a couple movies this casting was probably a risk at the time i'm sure that there were plenty of people in episode one who said was david schwimmer he's that on you know a comedic actor on nbc what is he doing in the serious war movie against yeah a completely against type and he just knocks it out of the park. Yep, I agree. Since then, I think Schwimmer has gone on to do fantastic things. He's had guest starring parts. He will pop up on Kirby Enthusiasm. He was awesome in the OJ series on uh, FX. Mm-hmm. You know, 18 years on, I know that he's a great actor. At the time when he showed up on screen in this, I didn't. And he just knocked it out of the park. A couple other yep. people who just, I think, deserve notice. Mark, um, Donnie Wahlberg's pardon. Uh, as Carwood Lipton, I think, is one of the best performances in the show. It's not an easy role. He carries one episode, I believe, in Best On, you know, almost. Yeah, Breaking Point. I think he's the narrator of Breaking Point. Yeah, almost by himself. He has a lot of heavy lifting to do. You know, he's one of the leaders of the group. He's their conscience. He can relate to the men. And, you know, I was just saying earlier to my wife that, you know, I think that at the time, probably the exposure we had to him was when he showed up in the sixth sense and a lot of people at the time didn't even know it was him and again (laughs) it was oh my god donnie Wahlberg can really act and now he has also gone on to have a really successful career you know you could probably do a whole episode about the casting even using dale die who you know as colonel sink who was a technical advisor (laughs) on the show i'm gonna throw out a couple other other ones just because see if people recognize okay Stephen Graham's not a name people know. He plays Mike Ranney, who is in a couple of the episodes. He's 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 one of the guys who goes up in the yep. tree with uh with Mark Wall with Mark Wall. See, you got me saying see the Wahlberg brother with up with Donnie Wahlberg in the attack on Breakor. He's Al mm-hmm. Capone in Boardwalk Empire. And he shows up in Guy Ritchie <clears throat> movies as well. I think he's in Snatch. Yeah, yep. that's right. In Guy Ritchie, um, Andrew Scott, who's plays Private yep. Hall in Day of Days, who's the first person to basically get killed that we know of, that we get to meet in anyway throughout the series. 
He's plays Moriarty in the Sherlock Holmes limited series with Cumberbatch. So he's a well-known British actor in a fantastic series that people don't watch, have, haven't seen much of Sherlock Holmes. Um, Colin Hanks, Tom Hanks' son, is, uh, is um, in The Last mm-hmm. Patrol. He plays the new lieutenant that comes in. He's in the Fargo series mm-hmm. now. Michael, I think it's Kudlitz. Kudlitz, uh, yep. Like he's uh, Kudlitz, he's Bull Randleman from Walking Dead fame. Dominic Cooper, who's he's Dominic Cooper from Mamma Mia and the young Howard Stark and all the Marvel, the new Marvel mm-hmm. series. He's in two scenes in the mess hall and he doesn't have any speaking lines. And now he's like one of the hottest mm-hmm. actors in Hollywood right now. My favorite one, though, is Dexter Fletcher. And I think I mentioned this to you like a couple weeks ago when we were going to do this. Dexter Fletcher, Dexter Fletcher plays Johnny Martin, who's in almost yes. every episode. He He's in Curry. Mm-hmm. He's got a few lines. He he yells at one of the guys for having his trousers mm-hmm. not not properly, you know, whatever lined yeah. or whatever. He's the guy who took over for Brian Singer as director of Bohemian Rhapsody, which just is like want to go to the Globe for best drama and stuff for best picture. He's the one who saved that movie, and now he's directing Rocket Man, the Elton John bio- biopic that comes out in like in May. So that guy went on. <laughs> okay, I. To be like a hotshot director. I'll admit, I, I, I did not know that at all. That is actually kind of incredible. That's it. That, one's, that one blows my mind. Out of all of them, that one's the one that blows my wow. mind. Now, outside of the acting yes. stuff, was um, a few of the the writers and directors on these episodes, yes. before we go yeah. right into the episode stuff, the pilot, Kurahi, the first one, I feel like they almost went for like an old safe bet. And I don't even know how – it's interesting how they even came mm-hmm. about choosing Phil Alden Robinson yeah. because he directed Field of Dreams, which is which is where he's fam- – what he's famous for. He also directed Sneakers, which is an which is like an underground ultimate favorite film of I mine. Love I love Sneakers. I, I, ride, I ride hard for Sneakers. <laughs> and it's also interesting because we'll get there soon. I'm sure me and you are going to review this, but – Kirhi is an underrated, probably, episode of the whole series, but people that watch the series, I don't think people think of Kirhi as their, one of their favorites, but it's one of mine. But big fan of Phil Alden Robinson's job, which is basically, that first episode is basically almost a whole movie. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's an hour and a half long. It is, it, it is a movie, uh, basically. Yeah. David Nutter is another one, directs an episode in the, in the uh, I forget which one he does, actually. He directed Replacements. But placements, yeah. We were joking about this earlier because he went on to direct a bunch of Game of Thrones, which is which honestly, since Band of Brothers, I can't think of another show that has the scope and the budget. I almost feel like since Band of Brothers, even though it's a miniseries, every big budgeted show now is almost like Band of Brothers. It only goes for like eight to ten episodes. These like True Detective, uh, Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Big budget, $150 million. It's like, this is the only thing you, you can really think of that's that much money. And he's famous for freaking doing Red Wedding, Mother's yeah. Mercy, and Dance of Dragons. Holy shit. That's crazy how he went from doing a Band of Brothers episode, and then he, be, he becomes like the go-to guy for... for well, Game I think, you know, I, I was... I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but, I mean, you, you, you just laid it out right there. I think that there's a through line between having to manage... You know, an episode, even if it's one episode of the biggest miniseries of all time to directing an episode of Game of Thrones, there's a scale there. You know, we're talking, you know, between 
Band of Brothers and when Game of Thrones premiered, you're talking about 15 years, but the scale and the scope and the budget is pretty similar. You make a good point that there aren't many things you could compare the two to. To give you an idea, you know, I think basically when you do the math, each episode of Band of Brothers came out to about 10 or $11 million an episode, which was unheard of at the time. To give you an idea, basically, you know, when you average it out, uh, an episode of Game of Thrones in today's dollars is about $12 million per episode, which is just insane. And this last upcoming season of Game of Thrones, which is shortened, and basically it sounds like every episode is going to be basically, you know, a 90-minute or two-hour movie, essentially. Those budgets, they're talking 14 and $15 million. The scale of these episodes for Band of Brothers is there's precedent. They were doing this, you know, 15, 14 or 15 years before Game of Thrones started with more rudimentary special effects, more rudimentary technology, a lot more practical stuff, much less CGI. And I think it's a testament to people, you know, obviously David Nutter went on to big things. I, I should also mention Game of Thrones too. He also, you know, he was ha, went on to be a very successful TV director. And I should mention he directed episodes of Shameless, Entourage, Sopranos, and of interest to you, West Wing. So nice little career. Um, I think a lot of the writers, like Graham Yost, mm-hmm. Bruce McKenna, they went on to be directors, executive producers, mm-hmm. and writers, head writers on the next project, The Pacific. And some of the some of the directors went along with them. I think Tony too, and mm-hmm. maybe one of the other guys went on as well. You have do you, before we get on to the episode, um, the shows. Do you have any information on the plans for part three of this whole thing? Yeah. So you know there there hasn't unfortunately unfortunately there hasn't been much new new news recently. The news came out. I mean now it's literally to the day almost six years ago that HBO was going to be working on a third World War II miniseries the first two obviously being Band of Brothers in the Pacific with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and the source material for it is allegedly Donald Miller's Masters of the Air uh, basically about a bomber pilots who flew missions over Nazi Germany and all the particular, all the you know principals who were involved in Band of Brothers in the Pacific, especially Graham Yost, um, were allegedly attached to it. Again, you know this news came out six years ago, uh, and there's been online chatter in various places as recently as two years ago that location scouts for Spielberg and Hanks were visiting locations in England. The pessimistic part of me says that with all the information we have now, if this was in the works or closer to reality, we would know about it right now. Yes, please. I would say if you're a betting man, I don't think we should hold our breath for it. This is a whole different discussion. I mean, I think the Pacific was very well received. It did win Best Miniseries Emmy for the year it was released. I think it's safe to say it did not have the same emotional or historical impact that Band of Brothers did. That is probably unfair to the Pacific because Band of Brothers was probably a once in a lifetime truly event. Yeah. Plus, just from a story perspective, you were following one group through the entire experience mm-hmm. rather than like supplanting right. three different stories. Just from a story perspective, though, I will admit that anybody who's a 
a history fan of this time period, and I, I certainly was. You, if you want to read a book or something on the Eighth Air Force, mm-hmm. um, which is the, what that book basically is about. I mean, it's, uh, that's an incredible group of uh, of history to to focus on. But to get to the the main heart of why we're here, let's jump into the episodes because this is my favorite. This is my favorite part. So, Curry. You people are at the position of attention. Every man in the company who had a weekend pass has lost it. Change into your PT gear. We're running Curry. I ain't going up that hill. Where would you? Where do you think about Curry as far as like a uh, like on the realm of like your favorites? We can totally dive into favorites and work our three through. But I'm thinking from the start, how did you think that the series itself started off? The right foot, the wrong foot. Was it slow? Was it too long? Without a doubt, the right foot. It's almost unfair to call it my favorite just because it was the first one. It did all of the, you know, it did all the world building. It did the scene setting. It introduced, you know, this myriad characters, it seemed like, in the first place. It established the visual tone of the show. Even though they're not in battle, you can tell right away, right off the bat from the first episode, that you're going to be getting this dark gray, you know, desaturated i should say coloring which i think is a hallmark of um uh, saving private ryan it works so well as a standalone but you can't get to the end and not just be clawing you know ready to you know start the next one i think it's got one of the best i mean i know people think of full metal jacket when it comes to this stuff but it 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 doesn't last Mm -hmm. long enough for me to be considered for this i think it's the best example of watching infantry like a group training Mm -hmm. in like a in like a war or army situation i mean it's it's literally almost like an hour and 20 minutes like other than maybe 10 minutes of it is like the full on watching a group getting trained like you're in you're at basic for almost 90 percent of it and i think it's like it's just so cool it actually makes it really really interesting of of like just the the politics and what goes on with these with these guys throughout the entire training, whether it be at Tacoa mm-hmm. and when they actually get to England and the training up right before a jump and what what they have to do before a jump. Also, it really set me up, and it still does today when I go back and watch it. I wasn't expecting to get emotional at a miniseries right off the bat, and if you can you get locked in with these guys meeting them, and when they start getting the engines ready and everybody getting mm-hmm. getting into those planes and they start flying off mm-hmm. right at the end of the episode and all the guys that work the airfield are staring mm-hmm. at them staring at those planes taking off knowing that like we're never going to see these guys again the the the, the visual the, the visuals of these guys faces acting either in utter respect or honor or holy god in heaven this is actually happening it breaks me down every time i see it mm-hmm. every time i'm just amazed it's almost like um, I think that's why I always remember that Phil Alden Robinson did it because he's the guy that um, made every son cry because his father played right. played catch with him yeah. at the end of Field of Dreams. I'm like, man, Mike, he he just knows how to make guys not feel comfortable with themselves. Yeah, he sure does, and, <laughs> and I, th- I I think they also to close the loop on one they they do a good job I think of explaining, and it may have not been obvious beforehand that this was a whole new thing at the time. 
yeah. the airborne attack. It, it sounds silly now, you know, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. But at the time, this was a brand new, and you know, there are there's a really good if so it's 25 or 30 minutes a making of documentary about Band of Brothers. As with any war movie, these guys were put through a ten a ten day boot camp to learn the basics of uh, training and you know weapons and tactics and you know hierarchy. It really does come through in this episode that these guys did go through an experience together and the camaraderie and the the inner politics and the cliques and what roles they each play in the group. It all comes through. It's a masterwork. It's an incredible first episode and just lays the groundwork for everything. I mean, I don't want to be bored. Maybe saying the first episode, you know, is my favorite, you know, is boring, but it's, it's a tough one to vote against. That's yeah, I know. And then when it comes to the second episode, it's literally almost like the quiet of the ending of the first, it begins almost like as a straight, it's almost like they, they could, it almost feels like they could have just made a movie out of the first one and the second one and combined them and had it be almost two and a half hours. Cause it literally is almost like a lead in edit into the beginnings mm-hmm. of uh, what day of days. And then all hell breaks loose. It almost turns into a completely different episode because it's literally the, the, the invasion of Normandy. You're on, you're on one of the, what C 37s. Mm-hmm. I think it, it starts with winners, right? He's just sitting in the doorway. I think when it starts, mm-hmm. they're, they're on their way over until it comes out of the clouds. When you first see it, because you, you mentioned a couple of times, it's in that early kind of time where you haven't really seen any type of visual effect shots kind of like this. Blows your effing mind. Mm-hmm. Every, like when you see it come out of there and the flak hits and all the, all the planes are there and they start moving around, it's a blow your effing mind type of, type of shot. They do a very good job of patiently showing you all the faces inside the planes. It's a good build. The, fir- the first few minutes you know, don't have any dialogue. And all you can hear is the engines and the creaking metal of the planes. And these guys, after all they've been through, they know that they're about to do something that has been in, has been planned for months and months and months that has, you know, basically never been done before. They're not even sure if they're going to, you know, be alive by the time they hit the ground. I was saying, you know, we keep saying, you know, this mini series was something that hadn't been seen before. As great as the first episode is, it's a boot camp. It's basically a movie about boot camp. There's no special effects. There's really nothing fancy about it. Episode two almost just sort of throws a bucket of water at you and says, no, this is something that you have never seen on television before. Drops you into these planes behind enemy lines with special effects, you're seeing something on TV that you've never seen before, and you might as well be in a movie theater because it's an experience that, you know, the first time you saw it, you know, my jaw was on the ground. I couldn't believe. So, wait, this is on TV in my living room? I mean, this is just something that we were not used to at the time. That night, I took time to thank God for seeing me through that day of days and prayed I would make it through D plus one. And if somehow I managed to get home again, I promised God and myself that I would find a quiet piece of land someplace and spend the rest of my life in peace.
I remember distinctly thinking, I've read this before, but it was really interesting now to see it for, for the first time in my life, mm-hmm. was the idea of one of those C-37s being shot out of the sky. Yep. And, you know, in that scene, you see one being shot, it's on fire, yep. and then it just goes to the ground and explodes. They show, they show it all the way to the ground, and it, it digs into the ground. Yeah, and explodes. And I remember distinctly thinking, this is the first time I've ever seen, and I and think to myself, the guys in there never never saw yep. any any fighting. Yep. They trained, they trained, they flew, mm-hmm. they crashed, they died. That was the first time in my life I remember ever thinking, this happened all the time. Half of these guys, and half of these guys never even got a ch- never even have a shot. And it reminded me a little bit of like the same Private Ryan thing of like when they mm-hmm. came up to the the first wave, yep. lower the lower the bridge. First twenty guys got it in the head, never had a chance. And it was that kind of reality we were starting to get on from from Spielberg and Hanks. It was these were the type of movies that we now become accustomed to. Yeah, and it, it obviously showed the randomness of war. It depended what plane you were in. Yep. Um, safety and numbers didn't matter if your plane happened to be the one to take that shot or, you know, the pilot didn't shut, shut off the engine in time. And, you know, you had guys on planes watching full planes, brothers go down in flames. That was, it was, it's upsetting. It's supposed to be. And then you've got guys parachuting in past anti, you know, aircraft <laughs> gunfire. And you're just saying, geez, any one of these guys could be picked off out of the air. It was just, it's a, it's a jaw dropping sequence. Now the, in my opinion, later on in this episode is my favorite, I'll just say it now, my favorite moment in the entire series. Mm-hmm. Like as far as moments go, the most if I can put if I see it on TV and I'm like, oh, Dave Days is on. I hope it's this part. I hope it's the break court manor assault part because I'll I'll just watch the whole thing. The last what what do you, what is it? Maybe the last twenty five minutes? Maybe the last twenty minutes of the episode? The, is the attack mm-hmm. on Braycourt Manor for the guns that are shooting down at Utah mm-hmm. with Winters and the other group of like nine guys. Now, I know historically this has significance, yes. but as far as just watching as part of of this entire miniseries, this is the best part for me of this miniseries. You, you can watch and watch this thing over and over again. The other part for me about this this thing is I went to Normandy with my dad and beyond it being like a an emotionally mm-hmm. amazing experience, I got to see the I went to Breakor and we got to walk around it and got to like being such a big fan of this miniseries, got to walk the whole area of where this was and the the farmhouse and the the mm-hmm. the manor and um, got to see the the Dick Winters leadership statue and stuff that that was there. So it was that just adds to it for sure, and that might be clouding my judgment. <laughs> But for me, that was the moment for me in the series. No, it's it, it's an incredible sequence when they flash that graphic at the end that this assault is still taught at West Point as a um, <laughs> yeah right yeah. as a textbook you know example of a you know what is it an assault on a fixed position fixed position yeah it blows your mind and there's there's so much going on the way it's directed it gives you a sense of place. When they're at each gun, you sort of know where you are in relation to the other guns, even if even if you don't have a lick of military experience, which <laughs> applies to me. <laughs> Carwood Lipton, you know, Donnie Wahlberg's character's reaction when he gets to each gun and sees that Hall, you know, has already been there. That's inc- where the hell did he come from? <laughs> yeah, that's that's incredible acting. 
it's a it's a it's 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 an unbelievable sequence. You could have very easily, after the whole when they drop them into Normandy, think, well, that that's their that's a signature sequence of the episode. But it turns yeah. out that you know the assault on Braycourt Manor is really that. In fact, is the um, signature part of the episode. Now, the third episode, Carantan takes the the group deeper into into France a little bit. Now they're a couple miles in. They've they basically have settled into position. They've gotten the, the entire division is now into Normandy. The the initial invasion to the beaches is settled, and now they're moving into to take a, a town mm-hmm. called Carantan. We're taking Carantan. That sounds like fun. It's the only place where armor from Omaha and Utah Beach can link up and head inland. So we take Carantan. They're stuck on the sand. General Taylor sent in the whole division. Remember, boys, give me three days and three nights of hard fighting, and you will be relieved. This episode is narrated by a private named Albert Blythe, Mm -hmm. who who is basically found on the roads in. He's been he's been just waiting there, I guess, and just separated from his unit. Yeah, unit. Yeah, it's an interesting episode based on the fact that he's kind of a. It's almost like a weird early episode to get us set up for like the weird PTSD mm-hmm. issues that that a lot of the characters start to have throughout the episode. He's like it's a strange episode mostly because you end up finding out it's like the it's like the number one inaccuracy that the, the yeah. whole series has. It's the idea that they mentioned that he died of his wounds that he ends up happening later but, but he, in didn't, turn, he yeah. didn't die for like 20 years after after that. Yeah. yeah. This episode for for some reason for me always ends up being one that I don't watch that often i don't know why i think it's because after the first couple episodes carantan has a, that great opening battle scene in, in the town but the very beginning always felt really sh- slow to me the ending battle the battle of bloody gulch with the mm-hmm. with the um the huge battle with the tanks and the <clears throat> the second arbor and stuff like that is a lot of fun is, has this been one that you found to be really strong or is this one of the ones that you kind of tend to pass by sometimes if you had to choose one. I would definitely categorize as one of the ones I'd be maybe a little less likely to watch. And of course, like when you're talking about Brand of Brothers, you know, if I say, you know, my my, my least A bad Beatles album. Yeah, my my least <laughs> favorite episode of Band of Brothers is still probably better than, you know, ninety eight percent of other T V content. So just as a disclaimer. It sticks out as like I always remember. It's like this is the one with the guy who they said died but didn't die. Yeah, I mean the <laughs> the one thing I do like about the show is this is where the legend of um, Lieutenant Spears starts to um, oh right starts to circulate right. where you know the story of him you know giving the German soldiers a, a cigarette and lighting it for them before he mows them all down and uh, and right before that Malarkey's character meets a German soldier who it turns out is you know from around the corner from him and back in Oregon right. so I think that's where you see Fassbender again too like Fassbender and them are talking in a foxhole and he comes up on them and he's talking to them too that's right you see Fassbender's like fixing up a gun and he talks to Spears that's right and they're talking about it good call yeah, yeah. so I mean it's, it's 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 definitely not my favorite episode but there's you know like every episode there's some memorable moments in there for replacements you want to talk about replacements a little bit yeah i mean i think this is sort of where cracks start to show in easy company it's where you start to see i think a little bit of resentment because you know there are these new replacements coming in and they are mixing with members of easy company who have all been together for you know what two years now from boot camp on I, i think they do a great job of building the tension between these between these two factions 
it's kind of funny, you know, watching it that while their main goal is to stay alive and protect each other, they still have time for these sort of inter, you know, inter-unit squabbles. It, you, you really start to see the hierarchy among the men in terms of, you know, battle experience and who's been on the front lines and who has uh, the street cred. I think this episode is sort of probably even-ish with Carantan in my um, ranking, not just because they sort of follow each other, but just in terms of content. I mean, by far the best part of the episode is watching Bull Randleman's situation where he gets, you know, caught, you know, after a battle sort of obviously behind enemy lines and has to fend for himself and watching watching the unit uh, volunteer to go get him out of there, including, you know, a replacement or two. I think it's a nice bookend to the episode where in the beginning of the beginning and middle of the episode you see some sort of fractures among the unit about who's new and who's been there for a while. But then when it comes to finding one of their guys, especially someone as popular and beloved as Bull, they sort of all come together and uh, get him back. There's some pretty nerve-wracking scenes with Bull when he's, you know, in the barn by himself and watching him having to, you know, you can you can really see the fear in his eyes, you know, being in that barn by himself and surrounded by the enemy. And uh, it's awesome, obviously, to see them, you know, to see him get back safely. And it's one of those things, it was a, uh, when it was a crummy situation that actually, you know, brought the unit together. So that episode, I think, you know, again, even with Carrington, Carrington for me, but I, I think the bull, the bull behind st- uh, enemy lines part is easily the strongest part of the episode. One of the things, uh, you know, it was interesting. I was curious to have you talk about it because I, I was wondering what your, your favorite part would be. Strangely enough, my favorite part is actually the very beginning. As much as I love the, I do. I love the everything having to do with Randleman's um, situation when they when they get uh, into trouble with the tank and he gets caught. But for some reason, my favorite part is actually the bar scene at the at the beginning when um, when they're playing um, darts and he and and the, they actually play on um, they play that trick on Babe and on the other side of the the room you have the McAvoy character getting shit on for wearing the the citation medal and like you get what you're talking about you get like that the kind of like that angst of like you're wearing it but you're a replacement he takes it off and randleman sees him because he's the squad leader and he picks it up for him yeah for later and mcavoy ends up dying later it's one of the things i think that i like the most and this is the episode that david nutter directed this episode i think of the four of the first four is the best directed of the four because it has three storylines going on. You have like you have like the opening scene that's written is like this bar scene that shows like the angst. Then you're gonna have then you have the um you have the the drop and you have the 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 Einhoven like liberation thing and everything's like happy and go lucky. Then you have the Randleman like everything goes to crap and the and the search form. There's like four or five different things going on 
in this one episode that he has to that he has to figure out how to tonally go up and down and all around to figure out how to do this episode. I'm not it's not it's I'm in the same league as you as where I place it of the first four. I like watching the first two better than this one. But as far as the storyline goes, I don't know how the hell David Nutter pulled this one off. Yeah. It was there's so much crap going on in replacements that it's I don't I it's it's insane directing wise how he how he keeps it like even worth watching. Oh, it's true. Now now I'm happy that uh to get to my favorite episode, and it's right in the middle. I'm gonna uh, this is my favorite episode, and it's strange because I looked up on um, like a few different websites because I was curious to be like, hey, Band of Brothers rank the episodes. This episode always gets put at the bottom of the pile on every single ranking of the episodes. But episode five is called Crossroads. It was directed by Tom Hanks and was written by Eric, uh, I don't know how to spell, how to say his last name, but Gendrinson. These two guys, along with Steven Spielberg, developed the whole series together. Um, Gendrinson was, I know for sure, was one of the lead writers. He wrote the first one, he wrote this one, I think he wrote one other one. It's funny to say this, but I'm like, I think it's one of the best directed ones. The writing in it is fantastic. I love the way the story for this one is told. The idea that like Winters is telling it because he's having so much difficulty typing up a report and having to remember it. The story of it, just like the way it's told from like a battle point of view. The story along like a like a river road, right? It's like a crossing. Like by a dike, yeah. By a dike, yeah. right? Like a dike crossing. It's fantastic. It's so good. And I think the other thing too is that it's a, a winter's episode. If you're a leader, you lead the way. Not just on the easy ones, you take the tough ones too. He was a real soldier. Like some of some of the officers, uh, I don't think I would follow them in the water, but uh, he was one of the best. He went right in there and he didn't, uh, he never thought of not being first or sending somebody in his place. I don't know how he survived, but he did. I always feel like my favorite ones are Winter's narrated ones. I don't know. Is this one that you're not a big fan of either? No, no, it's it's one of my favorites. I love the oh. device. I think it could have gone poorly in less talented hands. It could have felt like a lazy plot device. But the way him writing up his report and his flashbacks are threaded in and out, I think is just, you know, is masterful. I think Hanks does an incredible job with it. This is not just a vanity thing, obviously, of, you know, well... I'm shepherding this project. Let me direct an episode. Damian Lewis, too. I think, da- sorry, no, Mike. Ahead. I thought da- this was Damian Lewis's best performance in an episode. Yeah. Too, he, he, he carries it. I, I think it's, it, it's, it's smack in the middle of the series. It, it almost feels like a sort of um, a pause. Like you said, it, it, does, it does kind of serve as a standalone episode. Putting it smack dab in the middle of the series, I think, was brilliant because it's like I said, I think it just sort of slightly hits the pause button. Let's tell you this one main story about what happened here while Winters sort of reckons with what happens there and also reckons with his upcoming promotion, right. which basically means he's probably going to be leaving Easy. Easy Company on a day-to-day basis. So there's a lot going on there. 
And then- the Jimmy Fallon sighting too at the end, right? This is the moment we get Jimmy Fallon right at the end. Yeah, because at the end they're. Um, I- That's the other thing. You get the walking to the Bastogne scene right at the end. You get him like you know that really cool walking off into the yeah. sounds and down that road. It's just so cool. Looks like you guys are gonna be surrounded. We're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. I was gonna say that it's it's left with sort of this haunting, you know, if anyone who had Christmas passes are being um, canceled because you're heading to uh, you're heading to Bestone. That's the other thing from Hanks too. You remember when they're walking down that road? There's that street sign that says Bestone this way, Paris yeah. the other way, and it's like you can run home or you can yep. go towards hell. And all these guys are just walking towards shit. That's the other thing that's so cool. And it's one last sort of kick in the teeth of, you know, if I had a Christmas pass, I'd be in Paris uh, yeah, doing brutal. God knows what. And then it's the instant reminder, not only where you're going, but where you could have been. But the reality is that, you know, you're needed, uh, you're needed in Bastogne and, um, you know, you're, some bad stuff is about to happen. I'm going to let you take the next one, Bastogne. This was an episode at least I sort of put myself in their shoes and said, how would I have, how would I have got through this? How would I have handled this? My answer is, you know, definitely not well. <laughs> Even today, a real cold night, we go to bed and our, our, my wife will tell you that first thing I'll say is I'm glad I'm not in Bastogne. Researching this episode, it's, it's interesting to read that it was all actually filmed indoors in a massive airplane hangar. They really do such a great job of just plunking you in the middle of the forest and between the snow and their breath coming out. I mean, you, I don't know about you. I feel cold while watching this episode. You could both of them. Yeah. yeah, Both of these two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can talk about them in tandem. Um, Yeah. Easy company was asked to hold this forest. They were low on supplies. They didn't have warm clothes. Obviously this episode there's some of these episodes where they sort of, you know, give the ball to one character and let them run with it. And we haven't mentioned him yet, but this is the one that focuses on Doc Rowe, who I think does an incredible job in this episode. It's not an easy part. And the whole episode is him just running basically from foxhole to foxhole, helping anyone he can. Some guys are beyond help. Most of them he's able to. He's running from the front lines. It's a, it's a, it's a really visceral episode. and when in some of those parts of six and seven, which are the two episodes we're talking about, you it's almost hard to look sometimes because, you know, when the bombing is at its, you know, highest and there's trees splitting in two and guys just getting crushed, you know, in foxholes. This was a how much more can they take episode. Feel it through both of them. I remember, yeah, see for me, Bastone was the this the episode with Roe to me was almost like the start, it was almost like, here's my introduction. You know, there were a few guys you see, um, it was almost like an introduction to like, you mentioned, I think that was the best way to, to say it. This was like an introduction to the cold, like the elements episode. Like, holy crap, this is what these guys had to deal with. You got, Roe had to go back and forth to the hospital. You get this horrible thing, like the bombing start happening. You get the ammunition, the supplies issues, the trench foot epi- issues, a couple guys die, and then literally the next episode, you know, they didn't they didn't mince words when they called mm-hmm. it the, the episode the breaking point, when it was like literally even for the viewers was the breaking point. David Frankel directed it, which ended up which he ended up directing a Devil Wears Prada, 
in later years. He's had a, he's had a great career actually. Yeah. I forget what else he did. I know he did Devil Wears Prada. Breaking Point, other than other than Crossroads, is my other favorite episode. Breaking Point takes everything what Bastone did and then brought it up like ten ten markers, whatever you want to call it, because you get the ending to the whole Norman Dyke, you know, Foxhole Norman thing where he lets down the 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 group, and you get that huge uh, attack on Foy at the end with Ronald Spears and Lipton at the end, and this is the one that Lipton and um. Wahlberg narrates, which is unbelievable. But also, you get, and I don't want to like spoilers, but this should not be a spoiler. So many people that you've been on with from the very beginning of Curry that you got to know die in this episode or get brutally mangled. Especially like people like that you turn, you found out that you like so much, like Toy and Garnier. They get mangled. Yep. Mock and Pinkala get blown to pieces. Like so many people get hurt. And um, what is it? Um, Compton has that un- unreal scene yep. when he actually has to see this visually happen in front of him. I mean, it's profound for a viewer that you can't even w- imagine for a moment what it must have at all been like. You don't have a chance when your friends go down, you know, to to really uh, take care of them uh, as you might, and especially if you're in an attack, uh, moving or whatever. And uh, I withstood it well, but I had a lot of trouble in later life uh, because uh, those events would come back and, and you never forget them. <laughs> I'm I'm glad you brought up, especially I can't believe I don't even know if we've mentioned you know Garnier's character yet. He I was about to say he's probably my favorite character in the entire series, and that's why I wanted to bring him up in this yeah, episode. Yeah, I mean he he again I say character, but the the character he inhibits is so unique and so lasting, and it sticks with you. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Garnier and uh, Toy part because I think going back to Episode one, Curry. When we're talking about how they introduce you to the so many characters and how you get to know them so well, there's this this hill of information and familiarity that's getting built up throughout all these episodes. You get to know these guys, and I, like, seventeen years later, you know, I I feel like I know these guys. I, these characters stick with you, and in this series you get to know them and you feel you feel like even though you're sitting at home in the living room you feel like you have been through these battles with these guys and then after all this is built up in the breaking point they just slug you in the gut with it it's a it's effective because when you see those two guys torn up next to each other it obviously has a major effect on um buck compton too you know after he sees that he was never the same it's just so effective and it's emotional. It's a true story. And, you know, they either survived or didn't at the time. Some of these guys start to take on this mythic quality with you. You know, nothing could ever happen to them. They always have a comeback for something. The bullet, you know, ricochets the wrong way off their helmet. This mortar lands six inches the other way. And then that just socks you in the gut and it sticks with you. And, that's the that's the power of uh, the breaking point, really. That's why I'm like after that scene, I remember like the last part of the episode is the attack on on Foy, 
And I remember when it, when it comes to that attack, I remember every time I see it at that point in the episode, I'm like, I don't know if I can watch this. I can't watch yeah. any, anybody else get get shot. I'm like, I can't watch anybody else get blown up or killed or anything. I can't. I can't watch. And that's the cool. That's like the cool thing about how well the episode's done because it's like you're so done at that point that it's like more. I gotta watch more. I'm like, these guys are still going. I'm like, and then you think, you know, you're sitting at home and you're thinking, I don't know if I can take any more. And then you want to slap yourself in the face because you're like, these guys actually went through it. So yeah, yeah, it's a joke. But yeah, that was the breaking point. Is, yeah, it's just a phenomenal piece of yeah. It's a phenomenal moment to watch the, which actually brings you like when you get to the next episode, it's there is no way that it's not a letdown. The next episode for me is actually the the. The most disappointing episode for me. The Last Patrol, I never, I, I usually don't even usually watch. It's not, it's something I never watch. It's, it's basically when they're, 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 they're nearing coming off the line. The, the word, the word, um, on the street is that the Germans are nearing the end, and they've gotten to Hagenau. This one's narrated by yep. David Webster, who, who in real life, the, uh, the character actually mm-hmm. wrote a pretty, pretty good book that the series actually yep. used as reference. And this is his lone episode that he narrates, and he's returning from the hospital and is basically being treated as a as a replacement. So it's an interesting concept from that point of view. But the episode itself is basically about how they need to bring back soldiers from across a river. It's basically just how, even though the the war is coming close to an end, they still still having to do certain things, and that nobody's everybody's kind of at the end of their rope. Yeah, I mean, I I think I I think I like this episode more than you do. I think Colin Hanks is fantastic in it. Again, I wasn't too familiar. I don't know if I was familiar with him at all before this. I mean, Orange County, I think his first movie was a year <laughs> after this. No, I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I know it was Tom it was. Hanks' son. I, I think he's really good in it. I'm not saying it's, you know, the best episode. I really like David Webster's character as sort of the token, you know, Harvard boy who is, you know, has more book knowledge than everyone, but is still feeling his way around the politics of the unit. You're totally right. They treat him like a pariah when he comes back. How's the hospital and your hot food and your hot showers after these guys had been through Bastogne, literally. It is a good extension of the breaking point for me when they're being asked to perform a mission that at first glance and even a second glance doesn't seem that important. But you remember that in the armed forces, you know, when you're given an order, you have to carry it out. Obviously the best part of the episode is when they're, when they're asked to, you know, the mission, the first try to go over the river, which is what the last patrol was to take some prisoners alive. Doesn't go so hot the first time they're asked to do it again and you can see the looks on their faces that in the in the first attempt at it one of the guys is gravely and graphically uh injured none of them want to go back and winter's sort of an iconic scene to me you know tells them that uh basically they're just going to tell the higher ups that they attempted it and it didn't work and he you know tells them you know get a good night's sleep we're moving off the line tomorrow want you all to get a full night's sleep tonight, which means in the morning you will report to me that you made it across the river into German lines. We're unable to secure any live prisoners. Understand? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
Good. Look sharp for tomorrow. Moving off the line. And you can just the the body language of all the guys. I think it's incredible acting. You can see the, the weight, weight come, come off. off. I can't like... imagine what that was like. I don't have any relevant example to use from my work life, but I, I'm sure at the time I did a little fist pumped and was like, uh, "This is why." It was when Coach Rowe picked Sully instead yeah, of us to it, shoot the yeah, shot. Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> that was definitely a relief. So. You know, I'm, again, I, I, I do think I like this episode a little bit more than you. But, but yeah, it's probably. also, yeah. you know, when he says we're moving off the line, it's even if you didn't know how many episodes are left, you can tell that things are starting to uh, starting to wind down. And then they go right back up with the next episode. I don't even know what to say about this episode. I think what the, the thing to say about this episode really is the fact that Easy Company... The fact that Easy Company, after going through all this stuff together, ended up stumbling across a concentration camp and has has that to take care of is it, just kind of like a, a reminder of, of like, I'm like, really? Really? What else are these guys going to have to deal with? I think the, the most interesting part of this episode was I believe this is the only one where Nixon is kind of the main character in. I, I believe. And um, I, I think for me also is I remember reading something of how the, the beginning of the episode says it's like April 11th, 1945. And then at the end, he says Hitler's dead, but Hitler had, had dies at like the end of April. So it's like, like, what did those guys like sit on that balcony for like an extra yeah. two weeks? Listen to the, that music. I've always remembered that. I'm like, that's a little tricky thing. But I think that was it's an interesting concept. Just I think for People that just, if they want to not want to watch Schindler's List and they yeah. want to see what it was, you know, to deal with, the fact that Easy Company had to deal with that is just, it's a, important for that reason. Yeah, it's it's not easy to watch. It's not supposed to be easy to watch. I think that it's handled, it's handled as well as it could be. And I mean, knowing that you've got sort of the steady hand of Steven Spielberg, who directed Schindler's yeah, List, I, involved ensures that. They picked a good director for that one, too. They picked Frankel again, which was yeah. the, it was a good idea. That was that could not have been an easy episode to direct. From what I've read and seen, it was certainly not a, an easy episode to film and be a part of. Back in 2001, it's not like I knew what every upcoming episode was going to be about. There was that moment, either when I saw the description of the episode or as they were starting to discover it, where you sort of go, oh, like... Oh no! It never even occurred to me. And again, I didn't read the book, so I didn't know what what he's. No, company they wouldn't even go there. Did no. but I did. It it never even occurred to me, you know, discovering the concentration camps. And I'm not even sure that it even even occurred to me watching the show that these guys would not have necessarily even known these were a thing at the time. Sir, uh, we found something. I'll be on a patrol, and. Uh... We came across this. What, 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 what? Frank, Frank, what is it? I don't know, sir. I don't know. After that, the full scope of what Hitler was attempting to do and did came into view, but it it's sort of blew my mind not realizing that, yeah, they there there are apparently these whispers and rumors about about these places, but they were never I don't think any of the guys fully knew about them. And then even when they sort of get into the camp and 
I like that they even they even show the fact that even when they see all these people and even the guys don't know can you believe this place why these people are there you know yeah and there's this conversation where they you know use one of the guys one of the gentlemen in the camp as a translator and he's like why are you people here you know are you are you thieves are you criminals and they're running through everything and he says you know juden and he says jews that's why they're here it's a tough moment and it's you know again it's it's tough to watch. I think the title is perfect. It's a it's a tough it's a tough hour yeah. to watch. Yeah, that's a brutal one. The last episode points. It's like I, I, one of the cool things about this episode to me and how they ended it, outside of the fact that when the episode ends and it immediately cuts to the real faces of the real guys, mm-hmm. the waterworks just go. <laughs> yeah, you, you, but like, you yeah, um, you stole my thunder. I was gonna ask, do you? Do you, like, still, like, do you cry when you watch this episode? Yeah, almost every time. I do. So, um, but, like, whatever. But most of the time is, um, you know what, I, a lot of the times I uh, will have watched multiple. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I don't think that I've watched points just to watch points. I've usually watched one episode and then I'll watch points. But every single time it goes from that last line where it pull, pushes in on Winter's mm-hmm. And then it cuts to the real winters, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, uh, thank you so much. Yep. <laughs> the funniest part for me, though, um, I always found it not funny. Sorry, the most interesting part about this episode is I I found it really interesting of how they focused a story about the war was over, but somehow they were still losing guys. Mm-hmm. I thought that was an yep. interesting part of this episode. How rather than just focusing on the Birch's Garden. You know, we're going to end it. Let's just end the episode. They still wanted to show how they were losing guys yep. for no damn reason. It's almost like this episode was was a little bit of a uh, mm-hmm. at the at the armed forces for like, you know, these people should not have been here, but we're still here. And I think that right. Tom Hardy buys it in this episode. Mm-hmm. He's the one who gets the, into that car yep. accident. So I th- I real I always thought that was an interesting thing. You had all the fun stuff in the Eagles Nest and the you know the stuff people were taking home and all that fun stuff and the cool baseball game sequence and finding out what everybody did, which was so cool. Yeah, I mean the the stuff about still losing guys even though combat operations were over is another punch to the gut and you're just sitting there the first time shaking your head going, I can't believe that some of these guys survived all this. They're yeah. dying for the Nothing. dumbest. Like what's the guy that gets shot in the head? That scene yeah. is, and that you, I did not expect this episode to have some of that stuff in it. Which honestly, that's like a one of the like from the last few scenes, a few episodes. Like why we fight is just a an emotional ride, and then Last Patrol has a few things that are just kind of like surprises. But points, I mean, that scene when the guy gets shot in the head, they have to go look for the doctor, and then. That is the Spears of Spears scenes. When he comes into mm-hmm. that room he means and he's like, where is yep. he? And he's like, where is yep. he? Back slacks, slaps him with the pistol and he goes, call me sir. I'm like, I'm like, oh, Mike, it, it is as tension filled as any moment in the entire series. So the, the balance of that episode is really like, I wasn't expecting it. I just, you know, for like half of it is like really rough. And then the other half is like this beautiful thing. Them trying to get to the eagle's nest first is, you know, I love that part. Shifty being sent home with only the one piece of paper in the in the helmet. Yep, yep. It's really cool. It's how it's done, Shifty. Yep. You start to see them all, you know, moving on to whatever 
whatever the next step was. I mean, the baseball scene gets me. Yeah, that's awesome. Every time, I'm not, I'm not a movie or TV crier by trade. Sea biscuit. Yep. Other than that, <laughs> there's there's just something about the way they shoot that scene, and it's it's I guess it's happy and sad tears, and there's just something about how it's because they were real. Right? Yeah. Also, just hearing about there's nothing there's nothing sad about you know some of the blue collar jobs they went to, but there's just something that gets me about that these guys were literally these badass on the battlefield superheroes, you know, went home and not that there's anything wrong with this, you know, taxi drivers or fix it man, and there was just there was just something about the crushing, maybe not crushing, but the reality of going from that back to you know a post-world war ii the boom in suburbia sort of gets me every time and it's again it's from the first moment of the first episode you've been on this ride with you've been on this ride with these guys for 10 episodes you know you don't want it to end but you know it has to the way they shoot that baseball sequence but the narration by damian lewis is incredible and then ending with dick winters who is really the soul of the whole series is just absolutely perfect. I mean, yeah. there's no other no other way to end it. So, I definitely I cried at the time. You know, Band of Brothers I know has been a popular. You know, they'll show it on History Channel. You know, on like Memorial Day weekend or Veterans Day. And when I've chosen chosen to rewatch it, you know, on HBO Go or something, I'll often just fast forward to that part just to sort of experience it again. <laughs> but if it's on the TV, you can't help but can't help but watch it. And I think it's, you know, it's a, it's at a amazing end, amazing coda to an amazing miniseries. All right, Mike, thanks for joining us on a trip and journey back to, uh, Chicoa and, uh, the band of brothers. I hope everybody enjoyed our discussion about the, uh, band of brothers miniseries, the greatest miniseries ever created before. I know you're doing the outro, but one quick thing. I had a quick item. Um, oh, sure. When Band of Brothers um, uh, won the in the Emmy at the Emmys ceremony in 2002, a year after it came out, obviously it won Best Miniseries, and I think uh, that was a foregone conclusion at the time. Trivia question: Do you know who handed them the award? No. And who announced it? Mm-mm. Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. No way. Yep. I like that. Yeah, I just thought that makes that me would... feel even that. That yeah. makes me feel better. Yeah, and that's that's close to both of our hearts. So yeah, I know you're doing your outro, but that was we met him. No, no, I don't need that. I don't need to do it pretty anymore. Oh, and just for everybody who's listening, a really good documentary to check out. Mike mentioned uh, the making of Band of Brothers to check out. It's actually available on YouTube for free, so you can check it out there. And if you rent Band of Brothers or if you pick it up at your local library for free, we stand alone together which is an extra DVD in the box set, which is a documentary about the real guys. It comes with the box set. It's a fantastic documentary. If you get your hands on that one, it's like two hours long. It's a fantastic documentary about the real guys that uh, the Band of Brothers is all about. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. Mike, you kicked ass. Thanks again for having fun with me. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy, everybody. Bye, everyone. Peace. Henry V was talking to his men. He said, from this day to the ending of the world, 
we in it shall be remembered. We lucky few, we band of brothers. For he who today sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Thank you.